we are live. All right. So um, joining me here is Todd Leopold of Leopold Brothers. How you doing, sir? Lovely day here in Colorado. I'm, I'm doing great. Colorado is very beautiful right now. I imagine the, it's peak, peak weather, a lot of hiking yeah. to do, a lot of fun stuff. There, there are few places in the world that, that are as beautiful. We're very lucky here, and it's uh, very well, well known for having 300 days of sun a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it's hard to complain. A lot of people think that it dumps, you know, 10, 20 feet of snow a year in Denver. And we're at the foothills. We're at the edge of where the mountains are. So we get all the nice weather and all the snow hits up in the mountains where you want it. So we're, we're quite lucky. It's a beautiful place to live. Now, when it comes to whiskey making, you know, you've got a much higher elevation than Tennessee and Kentucky, obviously. Uh, yeah. But what about what about the climate? Like here, there's a lot of humidity. What's the how, what's the uh, the optimum whiskey making temperature in, in Colorado? Well, for for us, and the, the biggest effect that, that we have to deal with is the dryness. So it gets down to single digits humidity in August. And if you don't do something about that, uh, you can wind up have evaporation rates, your angel share per year in the double digits, as I'm sure you know. You know, so many uh, Texas distilleries and Arizona distilleries that deal with that. The, the way a lot of the other distilleries handle it is they age inside and, and humidify the air. Uh, what we do is we use dunnage style warehouse, which is, you know, similar to what you'd see in Scotland. So earthen floors and the same stacking material that you see, the wooden ladders called dunnage um, to, to try and get more humidity into the air and, and to trap it in the building and, it, it works very, very well. So our, our warehouse, we get 20 to 30% more relative humidity in it. And our angel share, instead of being in the double digits, uh, it's, it's actually 4.1% a year. Um, so you, you have to do something, uh, or you don't have to actually, what am I talking about? You can just let it go. Um, or you can try and accelerate it, which is of course what some of the Texas distilleries like to do, which is cool too. Um, but, but for us, we took a bit of a different approach and, and we don't want as much of a aggressive oak character in our whiskey. Um, we're looking for a bit more balance. And so that's why we use the Dunnage style storage. It works very well. Well, of course, like you, uh, you know, Leopold brothers has kind of, you know, flipped, uh, the, the contemporary traditions of whiskey making flipped it, uh, upside down a little bit and. You know, from the moment that you started bringing a Maryland-style rye to to the market to yeah. your now your three chamber system rye, mm -hmm. uh, I I look at what you all are doing as is kind of like, you know, going through time and trying to find what really really worked that kind of got lost. And t tell us a little bit about your 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 path to finding cool shit in the old days to bring to the, <laughs> to the present. Well, I think a lot of people, you know, sometimes mistakenly think that we're trying to make whiskey the old way. What we're trying to do is make the best whiskey that I know how to make. And a lot of the techniques that, in my opinion, made, made for beautiful whiskey were, were abandoned for, for reasons. Uh, you know, so we talked about for cost reasons. And, and uh, you know, p part of it is that people forget that, you know, the, the, the larger whiskey distilleries uh, held on. And I'm thankful that they did. And they had to find ways to 
uh, keep the lights on. And that, that's not an easy thing to do when you're making a few, you know, hundred thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of barrels a year um, through the 70s, 80s and 90s and up to 2000 when whiskey got cool again. So um, this isn't, this certainly isn't a knock on the larger distillers at all these are they're my heroes but w what we look at is some of the some of the procedures and processes that that they use that um, are different so i kind of touched on the dunnage uh dunnage warehouse we use and have used an entry proof of 50 percent uh from day one and this was the american standard in the late 1800s and i know this from reading some old documents uh, published by the irs just right after the bottled and bond act uh, there's a paper in particular that was published uh, by Crampton and Tolman. These are IRS agents, so uh, never let it be said that uh, the taxing authority has never done anything for us. They, they did a survey of 31 different distilleries to try and define what makes bourbon bourbon, what makes rye rye. So it was lead, leading up to making the standards of identity um, that we use now, the rules that we have to follow as, as whiskey producers and spirits producers. And in that paper, they, they showed the entry proof for all of these distilleries and every single one of them was at 50%. I think the highest was 50.5. Um, and of course, what happened in, in the uh, 50s and 60s uh, as there was a bit of a glut, and, and you know this better than anybody, Fred, uh, you know, they thought they were gonna have to make alcohol for the Korean War effort. They, they produced a bit too much and they're trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we save money and so they petitioned the TTB, well, what was the BATF at the time, but now the TTB to allow them to put their whiskey down as high as 62.5. Uh, obviously that changes the chemistry of what's going on in the barrels. So the difference between putting it in at 50 and put it in at 62.5, it's gonna affect the extraction rate. It's gonna extract color, or it's gonna affect the extraction of, of coloring compounds. It's gonna affect esterification. Um, the easiest thing to kind of explain to whiskey fans is if you're putting it in at 50%, um, most warehouses go up a few points during the maturation process for us here, here in Colorado for some reason that I'm not smart enough to explain. Um, our proof doesn't move. So we're in at 50% and we're out at 50%, which means bottled and bond here uh, is also cask strength. But you know, understand if you're going in at that higher proof at 62 and a half and everybody that's purchased cask strength bourbons have seen, you know, mid 60s, high 60s for proof. What happens when you have to bottle that at the usual strength of 45 or 47 or whatever it is? You're, you're diluting all of the work that you did in the barrel. You're, you're changing the nature of the whiskey by going in at that higher proof. So that was one of the big ones that we found. It makes a much softer whiskey um, at, at that proof. And, and it's just what, where we settled and what we prefer for the, for the spirits that we make, but that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, another one is the, the alcoholic strength. Um, and this is not just in America, but also over in, in, uh, the UK, Scotland and Ireland, the, the tendency was to make alcohol strengths of five or 6% in the, in the 1800s. And of course, um, if you look at a distillery that makes a 5% alcohol distiller's beer and a 10%, you're using the same equipment and doubling your yield essentially. So you can understand why they would move to that higher proof. The issue with that is, is that that again, changes everything along in the process. It changes how the stills operate. It changes how stressed out the yeast is during fermentation. So there's a, you know this, but your, your listeners may not. I uh, trained in Germany for brewing. That's where I got my start. 
And there's an old Bavarian brewing adage uh, for young brewers that your customers shouldn't be able to tell how strong the beer is until they get it from the table. And that always gets a bit of a chuckle, but what, what they're instructing you to do is to be patient, use lower temperatures, don't stress the yeast out, make sure that it has plenty of zinc, make sure it has plenty of nitrogen and that you have a clean, happy fermentation. And if you do that in, in whiskey production in particular, as well as making beer, you can taste the grain, you can taste the hops in the case of beer. It's a much cleaner, uh, cleaner beer. And what I'm getting at is that when you go from a 5% alcohol fermentation up to a 10, that 10%, you're asking your yeast to do more work, to consume more sugars. And when you do that, you stress out the yeast. When you stress out yeast, it gives off compounds like ethyl acetate, which tastes like nail polish remover, heat, hot. When people say this whiskey is hot, that's what they're referring to. They're referring to using these, these uh, not only warmer temperatures in the fermentation, which is a, a very modern thing. Um, so we ferment in the 60s. These days, most people ferment in the 80s and 90s, which again, stresses the yeast out. It's going to create different compounds during the fermentation of using warmer temperatures, but also fermenting much higher. So you're asking the yeast uh, to eat a lot more sugar, and that's going to change the nature of the whiskey. And, you know, that, that's really, those are two of the big things. And then the, the last one, without getting into the three chambers still just yet, um, the last one is the amount of malt that they were using back in those days. And uh, these days you'll see uh, malt in three to 5% for an awful lot. Of course, the most famous rye um, at, at NGP famously uses 5%. Generally speaking, what that means is, is that you're, you're adding enzymes to the process because there's usually not enough diastatic power. So in other words, enzymes are the reasons that you're adding the malt to break down the starches into the simple sugars in the mash tun. And so many of these smaller distillers back in the 1800s all the way up to Prohibition would simply use brewer's malt. Brewer's malt, and I could obviously talk about this for about an hour, um, <laughs> So I'll just try and simplify this as much as possible. Brewer's malt has a lower percentage of these enzymes that you need. So if you're using brewer's malt to make a bourbon or make a rye, you're really going to have to add up to 20, you know, 20 percent of this malt to make sure you're converting the starches into simple sugars in the mash tun. And of course, the difference between 20 percent malt and 5 percent malt, it's going to change the nature of the whiskey and the flavors that you get in it. So th those are kind of the highlights of, of some of the things that have changed over the years. And of course, um, you know, it, it should be noted that a malt would be a very different uh, practice than, you know, throwing in commercial enzymes. Uh, Correct. Where, where do you stand on commercial enzymes? I, th uh, <laughs> I think everything that everybody does is, is fine. Um, for me personally, we, we don't use it. The reason I don't like commercial enzymes is uh, it, it breaks down the grain too much. Mm -hmm. So it depends on what your goal is. Are you, are you looking for yield or are you looking for flavor? And a, a simple way to, to look at it is, you know, these commercial enzymes will break down a lot of compounds that the natural enzyme simply can't. So what that means is you're getting more yield out of the grain. The, the reverse of that, uh, of that goal is you're also making it so it's less flavorful, right? So in other words, if you're getting a few extra gallons out of the same amount of rye, what does that mean that that liquid, it's, that liquid is going to have less flavor from the grain. So quality suffers. And th this is one of those things that, that is left over from, uh, I, I 
studied O to V production. So fruit brandy production um, back in the early 2000s before we started it, and then 90s and 2000s before we opened our distillery. And when you're processing peaches and apples to make a brandy out of it, a lot of the uh, lower quality distillates, they'd add pectinase and other compounds that will break down these substances to create more sugar. What is that doing? That's making it so you're getting less apple flavor, less peach flavor. So to me, as a producer, I view it as a shortcut. And it's just not necessary if you're uh, adding malt to a grain fermentation to add those outside enzymes. I think it dilutes the flavor and it's counter to what we're trying to do here. So we've talked about fermentation. We've talked about your love for low barrel entry proof. And as a side note, I remember, you know, it's funny, like people ask me all the time, like, what do you, what books do you recommend or whatever? And like, you know, I, I don't like recommending my own books when somebody asks me that questions. I say, read old tax records if you want to understand whiskey. You know, so I, I used yeah. to I used to pour through like old treasury testimony and even congressional testimony. I mean, that's the whole that was all, my book, Bourbon, the Rise, Fall, Rebirth of American Whiskey. Almost 100 percent original sources traced to, you know, government documents that, you know, I mean, we share a passion for reading farm bureaucracy in the 1890s. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it sounds strange, but of course it makes sense. And you can find, you know, you, records from Powers and, and Jameson making testimony to British Parliament. That's where you find these things. And they're asking about, you know, how Irish whiskey was made. It's where, where I came across the use of malted oats, which, which we do uh, on, on site as well. To make an uh, you know Irish style whiskey, I guess you'd call it. We haven't. We're still about a decade away from releasing that, so forget I said that. Uh, <laughs> but no, you're 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 absolutely right. How helpful these documents are and taxation documents and 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 understanding how the taxation levels affects the behavior of the distillers trying to save money and trying to find better ways. You know, very famously, Irish whiskey was for a time, the number of stills that you had. So what did they do? Their stills got huge because they would save money. And if, you know, these cascading effects that government regulations have on, on the economic behavior is a fascinating, it should be a field, I think, uh, <laughs> um, not just with whiskey, but just about everything else where unintended consequences of, of regulations and, and rules. It's, it's pretty fascinating stuff, or at least I believe it is. And obviously you do too, but you know, I, I get grief all the time for um, you know, what it is I find interesting to read on a Friday night on wine, but you're absolutely right. A lot of it are government documents. And then also for brewing as well, you know, the big difference here in America, because there were so few distilleries uh, that, that survived, um, you know, uh, up until the boom that started in the, in the mid 2000s, mm -hmm. uh, they didn't really have a trade association the way that they do for the American Malting Barley Association that's been around for, um, you know, about five decades now. And then the, uh, the Master Brewers Association that's been around for a uh, hundred years. Um, and all of this repository of information didn't really exist. Uh, in America. And of course, the reason, as you know better than anybody, is that, you know, the distillers in Kentucky and Tennessee just would have lunch <laughs> because yeah. there, were so few, there were so few of them. That's their, their idea of transmitting information back and forth, which is beautiful in, in and of itself as well. 
And uh, uh, my listeners who are watching live uh, just pointed out my mic sounded like I was a little far away. Uh, I think that has been fixed. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the things that you, you we talked about, like those government, you know, decisions, the, the change of the barrel entry proof in 1962 from 110 to 125, to me, I think, uh, really decimated a lot of the quality um, of whiskey. So the, the fact that you're passionate about telling that story makes me, makes me excited to, to have these conversations with the fellow geek. But, uh, I, I want to get into, you know, the, the purpose of us kind of chatting today. And that is the, the three chamber still. And, uh, I will put a link to your YouTube video in the description of the, um, of, of my YouTube as well as pin it in the comment section so everybody can um, so everybody can watch it. I think it was a great video by the way. But just kind of explain to us uh, the three chambers still and where the where the passion came from for resurrecting that beautiful beast. Well it, it was uh, the same IRS document uh, that, that I mentioned uh, that was put together the study just after the bottled and bad bond act was passed and out of those 31 distilleries that I mentioned before about half of them made rye. Mm-hmm. And every single one of the rye distillers, except for one, used a, a chamber still. And when I came across this document about 15 years ago, I, I wondered, like so many do, what the hell is a three chamber still? I didn't know what it was. But the fact that all of them were using it, uh, you know, to me was, okay, well, why are they trying to use it? And of course, you know, your first thought is foam. Uh, you know, rye whiskey, especially with the grist bills that they were using, where most of them were 80% rye, 20% malted barley. And if you think about putting that into a pot still, uh, I can't imagine even trying to do that. It would char on, it would foam like crazy, it would be a mess. So I started, you know, down the road of, well, maybe this is because of foaming and, and foaming can be an issue with that recipe in a column still. Um, but then when I came across drawings and some discussions of how it operates, and the, a big one in particular that was in a, a, a metallurgical and chemical engineering um, a flow sheet book of all places. So it's basically had, here's how creosote is made, which is the liquid yeah. that you put on a railroad ties. This is how sodium hydroxide is made. Here's the flow sheet. And they had a piece on uh, a dis- what was at the time the largest distillery in the world in Peoria, Illinois. It was a Hiram Walker plant that opened, if I recall, in 1910 or somewhere around there. And in the flow sheets, they had two uh, column stills and a three-chamber still. And I'm looking at that going, if you're trying to make, they were making 100,000 gallons of whiskey a day. (laughs) I mean, that's just, uh, for for me anyways. That's uh, a lot of whiskey. uh, That's a lot of whiskey. So I'm looking at that and saying, okay, well, if you have two column stills, what the hell are you doing putting a three-chamber still in? Uh, what, you know, why would you do that? And of course, by this point, I had seen the drawings and understood how it works and realized it was because it makes a whiskey that the distillate is completely different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once I got that figured out and saw some discussions and, of course, had some um, what are, I guess these days called Dusty's vintage uh, uh, whiskeys that I got my hands on. Then I realized, okay, the, the way that this still is designed. So the, a lot of people don't know a column still. And I left this out of the video. There was a lot of editing because my brother kept saying, 
you know, this is going to be a two hour long video. So we had to simplify things as much as we could, but a column still from, from uh, entry in the top, you know, the, the mash, uh, the fermented mash cascades down and exits as animal feed. The design parameter for those stills from entry to exit is 90 seconds. So you have 90 seconds to get the flavors, to get oils, to get, you know, everything that you're looking for in a bourbon. That's how much time you have, 90 seconds, that's it. The three chambers still, by the time you're done with it, it's 90 minutes of steam treatment. And that much longer amount of steam treatment together with some other things that are explained much better in the video, particularly with the animation, you're extracting a lot of oil. So the way that it was marketed in a lot of pieces that I came across were, were as heavy bodied whiskey. And when it's coming off of, uh, uh, off of the uh, uh, spirit safe, which is basically just a, a hydrometer cup, I'm sure all your fans have seen one. It's a hydrometer cup with the alcohol spilling out. There's so much oil in it, even if it's coming off at 70% alcohol, that you'll see a meniscus that goes over the top uh, of the hydrometer that's about two centimeters high. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I ran it on the first day, uh, the very first time I ran it, I'm like, oh, there it is. That's why the, the, the mouthfeel is unbelievable. The amount of oil that's in it is unbelievable. And, and as you know, Fred, so many people are looking for um, a finish and a finish that goes on for days. And if you can imagine how much when you're pulling that much oil off, the oil is going to coat your mouth and make that finish go on. But what comes over with those oils are aromas that you're not going to get off of a column or a pot still. One of the reasons is the oils that are coming out and that's going to carry rose aromas and lavender and these other beautiful floral notes. Um, and the, the, so that's part of what's going to, going to happen with that. But the, but the other thing, and I've completely lost my train of thought, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's hard to explain these things without drawings and, and, and that kind of thing in front of you. But um, okay. the, the, the flavors and aromas that come over are, are really just entirely different than you're going to get off of, of a, a pot or a, uh, or, or a column. You can see why I, we put that video together. It's difficult to pantomime and explain all of this stuff. <laughs> well, that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, and I'll tell you that, you know, we like that sort of information. I, I think it's fantastic. And, and I know you built this with Vindome uh, right here in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, was it a, was it a, just um, a, a design and build or, did did you all have um have some hiccups? You know, take me through the 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 process of building it because it's been in works for for a couple of years. I know that. Right. Well, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was one of the things you know. So w what happened was I came across the the documents, you know, fifteen years previous. David Wondrich, the, the wonderful historian, uh, did a piece, I think, for, for Whiskey Advocate or somebody. like I can't remember exactly where it ran. And I'd been wanting to install this for all of this time. And, mm -hmm. and when that ran, I told my brother, I'm like, well, we better do it now or somebody's going to do this before we get to it. And I, I approached Vendome. Our other pot stills come from Vendome. So we already had a wonderful long-term relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was working with their junior engineers. The Shermans work with the much larger distillers and we're not a larger distiller. And eventually, as we were starting to work into it, first of all, they looked in their archives to see if they had any old drawings. Obviously, that's the first thing you're going to want to do. You, you figure if anybody had built it, Vendome. And Vendome had actually acquired another uh, uh, copper works 
at some time during their history and they had a bunch of old drawings for that. They went through their library, they found nothing. And so what we were going with was, was uh, you know, what it is I was looking for them to do. And at one part, Mr. Sherman called me up and said, well, Todd, you're certainly doing some interesting things these days. And I said, yeah, yeah, yes, sir. We're trying to have some fun here and do something a little different. And he said, well, Todd just wanted to let you know, I can't guarantee this still the way I can guarantee our pots or our, our columns, because I, I got to tell you, I don't understand what the hell this thing this thing is. And I said, no, don't worry about it. What, where Vendome was indispensable was the metallurgy. So if you think about a, a, a column, they're, they're, you know, the smaller ones are two feet in diameter, the bigger ones get into the fives and sixes. Relatively speaking, you don't have a whole lot of mash in it, but you're injecting live steam into that column. So there's going to be some vibrations and stress points. With our three chambers still, it's actually about five feet in diameter and 20 feet tall with a lot more mash sitting in it. So instead of it just sitting on a plate, just a few centimeters of mash on each one of the plates, um, this we've got four, four or five feet of mash in each chamber with steam bubbling through it, right? So it's a mm -hmm. lot more vibration, a lot more stress. And where they helped was really taking a look at the stress points and, and making sure that it was safe. Uh, we actually put in uh, on the back, we had your typical uh, pressure and vacuum relief fittings on it, but we added another special one uh, that we had located together uh, off of a railroad car. So think of, uh, um, you know, filling an, uh, a railroad car with oil or liquids and filling it and emptying it. Well, how do you do that without having an air brake of some kind? And it's a special uh, fitting that does both, that both releases pressure and also releases under vacuum at a much higher flow rate just to make sure that the still was safe. So I thought that was kind of a fun little quirk that we had to add in there. Um, there were a couple of adjustments that we made when, when it arrived on the, on the pipe work. Um, th that was kind of to protect us and make it so that hopefully we'd be the first to come to market. Um, and of course, now that we've gone through all of this trouble, I'm starting to realize what I had hoped when we started this was, is that we'd rekindle this old style. I'm realizing that this is so cost intensive. We're the only ones who know how to run it. Um, I'm trying to picture who, who else would, would, would take to making one. We did have uh, Freddie No came out a couple years ago. That was an awful lot of fun. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, he's just wonderful. He, he's going to be taking Beam into some really beautiful new directions, I think. It's, it's neat to see what the, new, the next generation is looking to do. We got, a, we got along like peas and carrots. Uh, but he, uh, he and I were standing at the still and trying to picture what that still would look like if we need to do even a, even a small release, even a boutique release from Jim Beam, how big that three-chamber still would look. Um, and, and we're realizing, you know, maybe this isn't going to happen and we're going to be the only, uh, only three-chamber still out there. But that was a fun day for me, ha having him out and go home to – my wife and say, yeah, you know, Jim Beam's great, great grandson came out to look at the still. I guess more people are watching this than uh, we thought. And then, of course, uh, that night when I was trying to get some sleep, I'm like, oh, God, everybody's watching. <laughs> so that was a <laughs> bit of a I didn't sleep a wink that night because, of course, you know, it's a lot of pressure. You want to make sure that you're you're doing the still and the history of it justice. But um, by all accounts so far with the folks that have that have had it are are very pleased well, I, I saw I saw my friend uh, David Wondrich's uh, tweet 
uh, about it, and I know he's a big fan. And I, I, I said, I told you I wouldn't taste it until after we we chatted, and uh, I'm really looking forward to tasting it. I really am. Well, I, I think you'll be pleased. I think the, the um, you know, so, some of the other uh, distillers that have had it would say it's it's a different modality. So, so the you're you're going to get you know, in, in to my palate, anyways. The floral notes tend to, uh, they're of course in the nose, but on the palate, they show up in the finish. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really a unique thing. And the other thing that uh, Dave Wonder had said to me was uh, he had always described this kind of, he called it a cedar note or a cigar box note. He thought maybe that what he was tasting from the old overhold samples that he'd had from 1910 around, around that era, he thought it was maybe old growth wood. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that the flavor of the wood and what my hypothesis is the, the reaction of the, of the oils is extracting different flavors and compounds out of that wood that kind of gives it a cedar note. And of course, it's just a, it's a number, uh, number four char uh, independent state barrel um, who've been wonderful partners in, in, in this, uh, this whole adventure. Um, but he, I've had more than a few people say, boy, Todd, it just tastes just like old overhold, which isn't what we were trying to do. We're, we're, what we're trying yeah. to do is make something delicious and tasty with, with the best tools that we know how, uh, you know, to, to get our hands on. We weren't trying to replicate. So I think some people get confused with what we're trying to do, where we're intentionally trying to be old timey. I don't care about old timey. What I care about is you know, looking at some of these tools that may have been cast aside for no reason other than, um, you know, money, you know, Mm -hmm. and what, one of my fun conversations that that, that I had, I'll slip this in uh, that I kind of skipped over. I ran into Lincoln Henderson before he passed away and he was out in Denver, uh, at at a liquor store and I was there getting vermouth, which I, I always like to joke. I, make how many different spirits and what does my wife want me to get for her vermouth <laughs> to drink neat. So I was there to go what I call my walk of shame to go buy her, her vermouth and Lincoln Henderson is in the store. And of course, you know, he had no idea who the hell I was. Why, why would he have any idea? And I introduced myself as a young distiller and, and, and said, listen, I don't know why I brought this up of all things, but I said, you know, we've been making whiskey for some years and I've been putting down the whiskey at 50%. You know, it's some of the older books, yada, yada, that I'd read about. And he looked at me and said, well, you know, that's funny. In the 1960s, I was in charge of the crew that was taking our whiskey from 50% up to that higher proof. I said, no kidding. And and he said, yeah, he said, yeah, we were, did a lot of work and what we found, and I wasn't smart enough to figure this out, but he said what they found that they ran into uh, was they ran into the color was the problem. So in other words, as they kept moving it up higher and higher, when they diluted it to bottle strength, it wasn't meeting their, their color spec. So that's what they used to cap how high of a proof that they were putting in. Isn't that interesting? That is and, very and interesting, so, yeah. Yeah, so he's explaining this to me. And then at the end, I'm, I'm like, I realized I was taking up the time. And you know how those, those events are. They're trying to take them into as many right. stores as they possibly. Yeah, so I said, listen, fellas, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to take up that, that much time. And Lincoln leaned in and he said to me, you know, but if I had to do it again, I'd keep the entry proof at 50% and he winked. And I, <laughs> I, you know, what, what a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing to have. And I shared that uh, with the Hendersons, when, that story when, when, uh, when he passed. But 
What well, a completely fortuitous thing, right? And, and you know, the thing is, is um, you know, Lincoln was great, and all the old timers would always say, or always say, you know, the bean counters get in the way of of making great whiskey, and everything that you talked about that led to the extinction of the three chamber still were money people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you spent how much money to build this thing and how much money is it going <laughs> to take to keep it going and how much, you know, manpower is it going to take and how much time are you losing, which leads yeah. to lost cases. I mean, so like the pragmatic business mind looks at this and says, you know what? We're losing 60% volume. Or yeah, we're losing forty percent volume. Yeah, that is a hundred percent it. Yeah, and so yeah. like you know when we talk about, I'm I'm just putting on my defensive uh, posture here for you. So when someone says like, "Oh, you're just trying to do old timey things," that's BS. Those things that worked very very well and were absolutely efficient just didn't churn and burn. I, in some ways, I would say that what whiskey became to what whiskey became was like it, it started becoming a little bit of kind of like in the in the 1800s. I I I believe they have perfected the column still, and they've got it all measured out, and and the the science is, has probably overtaken the art a little bit. But you look at kind of when the the three chamber still kind of went extinct. Um, the 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 column still was, I mean, it didn't yield as great as whiskey as everybody thinks. It was becoming it was slowly evolving into what it is today, but the three chamber still, the pot still, you know, those were largely inefficient. Um, but it's basically like fast food versus fine dining in some ways. And um, well, I, I I agree with you, but you know, some of it too. If I can, you know, d defend those larger distillers, um, you know, you think about the alcohol production that they had to do for World War II. You can't make um, high proof alcohol with the chamber still. Sure. So when, when Uncle Sam comes to tell you to pitch in and, and to, to win the war, you can understand. I mean, you can, I don't even have to look. I'm sure dozens of three chambers still disappeared in World War II simply because of that. And they're like, well, do we want to bring this back or not? And then it happened again with the Korean War. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had the Shapiros on, you know, with, oh, here we go again. We're going to have to start cranking out. We, we've been down yeah. this road before, and, and I'm sure that that let, led to a few of them distilling, you know, or uh, some of them leaving as well. But, you know, they're, 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 they're back in boom times now, happily, you know, these larger mm -hmm. distillers. So I guess it's possible that someone else is going to come in and, you know, they, they, they know where to find us, I guess. You know, maybe yeah, Freddie Nell will we'll have a will have a go at it, and I'd certainly love to work with him or you know any of the larger distillers on this would be a hoot. Well, if I've learned anything in American whiskey, is that uh, there are copycats just waiting in the wings to copy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I you know, the, it, it's how do I say this? Uh, it, it's more complicated than it looks, it, it, and you you have to have an understand. You know, this is I'm 25 years into my career now. Um, a lot, a lot of people don't realize that in the in the whiskey world, the the thing I've always gotten a kick out of because we make gin and um, I'm sorry to say vodka, 
I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. What did you say, Todd? You broke up there for me a bit. Yeah. I've, I always pointed out to Charles Cowdery that you, you know you can't make gin without vodka, and if you look at it that way, um, I, I don't disagree with you on on the fundamental points. But you know, when we uh, started our, we released our first spirits back in 2001. We couldn't get a, a wholesaler to return our phone calls unless we had a vodka. Hmm. So, you know, you got, you got to do what you got to do to keep the lights on sometimes, but yeah, my, my whole philosophy too is more of a historic one and how some companies also use vodka as leverage to get, you know, for, you know, leverage, (laughs) you know, that, that's really, that's really where that comes from. I have no issues with anybody drinking vodka yeah, uh, or or any distiller doing it, but it's, it's, it, it is tongue in cheek and, and, you know, who knows? I mean, the, the big troll of the, of existence in the spirits world. Maybe when I come out with my own vodka, who knows? You know? <laughs> well, the one thing I can promise you is that you won't have to buy our vodka to get a bottle of the three chamber. We don't, uh, we don't play those games. We're, we're a little too, uh, that's not our bag. So um, let's, let's speaking of that, let's tell everybody where they can get it. And are you all open to the public yet? You know, can people come and, and check you out now? We are not open to the public yet, so I'm sitting in a very empty tasting room. We're about a month out. Just like everything else, COVID has slowed our ability to get the packaging for the three chambers still. So sure. my hope was to have the whiskey out now. We're, mm-hmm. we're looking at June. Um, it, it's going to go out to you know California, Texas, Illinois, New York, um, uh, D.C., Atlanta. Um, you, people will be able to track that down. I'm sure we're going to get lots of calls and and. We'll do our very best on our Facebook and social media to let people know um, where, where it's going to wind up going. But people will always be able to get it at, at, at the distillery. Um, and if you can't get it at the distillery, I'll be, uh, yeah, that'll be a good problem for us to have, I guess. Um, but, but we'll wait and see. We'll see what's how it your, goes. Uh, what's your uh, case count? How many bottles do you got out there? Uh, well, we're going to do a first release. We're going to do a special release. that will be hand signed, kind of a collector's mm-hmm. edition to, you know, commemorate. This is the first time we've had three chamber whiskey released in at least five decades, as far as we know. Um, mm-hmm. so that we're going to do 5,280 bottles. That'll be the first release. And, and, uh, you know, after that, I, you know, we'll, we'll have about a, let me think about this about a thousand cases a month available. So we made what we thought was, what was enough. Um, for everybody to be able to, that's interested in it, to be able to get uh, get a, a hold of it. But as you and I both know, not only have things changed in the last six years since we uh, built the still, mm. uh, things have changed so much during COVID. Uh, I'm blown away at the number of whiskey groups and, and the proliferation of people that are serious whiskey fans in the last 12 to 24 months. It just boggles the mind. So... Um, we're, we're hoping to make it so that it's as available as we can possibly get it. Um, I'll, I'm sure we'll reach out to, to some of your partners at Bourbon Pursuit. We're, what we're trying to do is make it so that people who want a seal box and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, we want to make it so that people who are interested in this can get it. We will do our very best on, on that count. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to taste it. Uh, the, the members got to see, my YouTube members got to see this live. We will take this interview and chop it up and pair it with uh with with my tasting and uh you know also put it out there on on the social social medias and everything but i look at what you're doing as as something awesome and i've always uh you know we have a 
we both have a passion for for great whiskey and um, I have been so excited to see how small distillers are coming forward and putting their stamp on whiskey and we're getting away from the what people consider to be bourbon you know we're going to the four grains we're getting away from the MGP uh, rise which are lovely but that's not what rye is like everywhere you know so yeah. I, I'm just I'm just so excited to see the to see where things are progressing and in, in what is my passion because you know it it gets pretty boring from where I sit to just talk about the same six distillers all the time right. you know no well for from my perspective again i started as a as a brewer in the in the mid 90s the same thing happened to, to the brewing industry back then and the idea that you could get a world-class german style pilsner or a belgian beer in america was laughable in those days mm -hmm. and, and look at how much things have changed as to where you know when, when i was at brewing school in 1996 I'll never forget uh, the professors and a, and a couple of the students took me out for the first night. And this is when I learned, boy, you have to have a thick skin as an American. Uh, they said, tell me, is it, is it true? Can you, can you get, uh, can you open a brewery in America w without having your diploma in brewing? And I chuckled and I said, yes, that's true. And one of them muttered, well, that explains so much. And <laughs> Uh, you know, again, this was 1996, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're just at really at the dawn of, of these small brewers, and it took time for, you know, those to get, you know, an edu formal education. And, and the same thing is happening with distilling, and you're seeing the people that are putting in the work. You know, Alan Bishop is a, is a great example, you know, yeah. that, you, that you've had on, uh, you know, that have put the time in, that have put the work in, and are trying to make you know, putting their whole soul into it and not, as we like to say, yeah, they're making alcohol. You know, yeah. <laughs> yes, they, they are making alcohol, no question. But, you know, how can you make something that's unique and that has finesse and that, you know, and I'm now at the at, at the point now where, you know, and Freddie No is very politely looking at me, as you can see the gray hair. He's looking at me as an old geezer, you know, because <laughs> I've been around for a while now. And and as more of us, you know, Lance Winters, you know, you, I'm sure you've had their ball yeah, yeah, yeah. out, out yeah. in California. As more of us are getting into the kind of the midpoint, or at least what I hope is the midpoint of my career, I'm, I'm 25 years in, um, that we're going to start to really make some some distinctive things. And that's what you want, right? You don't want it to all taste the same. You want different flavors. You want different ideas to creep in. And I think you're right. We're just starting to see that happen. And, and as the, these distilleries are getting more successful, uh, as you mentioned briefly, this is really capital intensive. We had to pay for that mm -hmm. three chamber still out of cash. You know, it, it took an awful lot of, you know, the 15 years of work to get us to that point where we could afford to put the damn thing in. Um, and letting that whiskey sit, it's going to be almost five years old. That's very hard to do. And tell the larger distilleries that you're not for sale and you want to remain independent is very difficult to do. Um, but you're starting to see the breakthrough. New Riff, another wonderful example. The neat things that Erisman and the, the crew over there are doing. Mm -hmm. I think we're really rolling into a kind of a golden golden age of Woodenville is another one that comes to mind. Boy, I had a dram of theirs, and, and the, the orange that jumped out was unlike anything I had had before. They're doing beautiful work over there. But we're getting there. And if you're a whiskey fan, boy, you know, buckle up. 
I think the next decade is going to be an awful lot of fun in America. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, my friend. And uh, you're right there at the top of uh, Mount Rushmore for, for distillers <laughs> for distillers changing the game. So it's great having you on, Todd, and I'm so, I'm so excited to see uh, what the future holds for Leopold Brothers. And more than anything, I can't wait to taste it. I was just about to say, I'm dying to see what you think. I think you're going <laughs> to love it. Take your time with it and enjoy that nose is all I have to say. I know you do that with all whiskeys, though. Absolutely, absolutely. Unless I have to taste like 500 in a in a weekend, then I'm a little <laughs> then I'm a little quicker on the nose. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad Sam, you're not in San Francisco doing the doing the whiskey competition. So um, maybe mull it over, have a seat, enjoy the misses, and and have a dram over an hour, and I think you'll really enjoy it. You take care. Cheers, my friend. Bye bye.